0: You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Good afternoon slash evening everyone. Thank you for coming to our final Black Architecture talk of the series. Uh, So this talk is titled Looking Forward, Looking Backward. And so we'll be doing a bit of a review of the four talks we've had before now, and then uh, talking in the context of what happens now and in the future for the Indigenous built environment. Um, I'd like to acknowledge the Traditional Custodians of the lands on which we are gathering tonight, the Willem people of the Boon Wurrung Nation, uh, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and future and emerging. Future and emerging are the same thing. Um, I would first uh, also like to acknowledge Swinburne University for sponsoring tonight's talk. Um, and the talk will also be uploaded online later if anybody needs to catch up on it. Uh, tonight we've got with us, we've got Timmer, sorry, wrong direction, we've got Jack Mitchell, Timmer Ball and Maddie Miller. So Jack is a designer from Perth with Noongar Heritage studying and working in Melbourne. He's currently engaged in a research project that is investigating how a deeper cultural understanding of Melbourne's waterways, primarily from an Indigenous perspective, can foster future development in the city. Timma is an urban planner, freelance writer and zine. Zine or zine? I've never understood that. Zine? Zine maker. <laughs> Her work uh, has appeared, oh yeah, I don't know how to pronounce that. Can you explain that? <laughs> oh, appeared so in Mianjin. Mianjin, Yep. Yeah. Okay, great, thanks. Her work has appeared in Mianjin Un magazine, The Westerly, Overland, The Lifted Brow Online, Cordite, and The Griffith Review. She recently co-produced Wild Tongue uh, the Wild Tongue Zine, Volume 2, for Next Wave, exploring the issues of unpaid labour and unacknowledged class privilege in the arts. And we've got Maddie Miller. Uh, Maddie Miller is a Darug woman and an archaeologist at Heritage Victoria. Maddie advocates for broader acceptance and incorporation of Aboriginal knowledge systems in design, urban research and architecture. Maddie is the co-chair of the Indigenous Advisory Group to the Clean Air and Urban Landscapes, hub of the National Environmental Science Programme. Maddie is deeply committed to and actively involved in creating space for Aboriginal voices in placemaking through Indigenous Architecture and Design Victoria, of which she is a member. And Maddie is currently participating in the Joan Kerner Young and Emerging Women Leaders Program. Um, So please welcome our guests. Uh, so as I noted before, the talk will be a bit of a, uh, a bit of a review, so I've, we'll be going through the previous talks that we've done, women's business, procurement, memorialisation, education, uh, and pulling out some of the themes that we discussed in those topics and hearing uh, some different perspectives on those, but also um, then looking into what comes next, um, what you guys are currently working on, and what we should talk about next time. Um, so we'll start with uh, women's business so Maddie and Timra I might throw over to you for this question um, one of the the really interesting conversations that we had from the women's business talk was looking at what are the actual responsibilities of indigenous women in their professions especially because we're all working in sort of a western profession what is your responsibility to yourself or your, your community in those roles
1: I'll try and tackle that um, I think it's a really important question and for me What immediately comes to mind is that professionally, I feel like women, Aboriginal women specifically in business and in government, I think unfortunately tend to sort of sometimes still undermine themselves and not sort of really kind of see the strength and power in matriarchy. And I think one of the things I sort of feel is that particularly in government, there a lot of the time seems to be a lot of Aboriginal men who are getting... Into quite senior roles, which is really fantastic, but certainly not seeing sort of women, non-binary, or queer sort of identities in those leadership roles. So certainly, yeah, just really kind of recentering the power of matriarchy and that pre-colonisation. We certainly weren't a gendered, hierarchical community and group of people, and yeah, I think just really encouraging Aboriginal women and people to sort of respect that and sort of find pride in that.
2: Yeah, I think, um, you know, in my career I've been fortunate enough to be mentored by a number of wonderful um, matriarchal Aboriginal women uh, and they've been incredibly influential on me but when you look at their careers and where they are at, they are still maybe a you know in these entry-level positions and, and I work in government and so it's particularly prevalent when we see numbers of Aboriginal people um, it's often stacked at the at the bottom um, and what filters through to the top is is less um, and that's particularly prevalent in Aboriginal women in caring roles and caring for country and caring for communities so Aboriginal women working in um, youth work and justice and Aboriginal women working in um, places like Dalp and parks Victoria in land care um, and so, you know, when you um, talk to these women, you see that their careers have, have never, never progressed and they've never been offered um, any sort of mentorship or opportunities outside of where they're at. Um, you know, it just goes to show that, you know, where we put value in our women is not always reflected in the way in which a Western working world works. Um, and so they're never given opportunities to be in positions of power and influence um, and so you know where we could be and where we could have progressed with our strong matriarchs is you know not there yet
0: it's interesting because Ina Caroline talks about women holding knowledge and men holding or strength and power and that was a sort of way that well at least in this country that the, uh, that people were organised and that doesn't seem well it obviously doesn't align with a patriarchal system or a patrilineal system um, but it's I mean the future's exciting it'll be okay Um And on that, I'd be quite interested to hear your reflections on Western knowledge versus Indigenous knowledge in professions. So, um, like, my understanding of that uh, is that from a Western perspective, knowledge is sort of available to you and you're allowed to access it at any point, whereas in an Indigenous understanding, uh, from my own perspective, it's about you earn that knowledge when your elder is deemed that you need that knowledge to uh, be able to work with what you're with whatever you're doing, whether it's life or profession, um, and how that might impact your... Or what, firstly, what are your all of your perspectives on that and how does that play out in your workplaces?
2: Yes, yeah, so I think I get, I get a lot asked a lot about, well, you know, knowledge and when can I know and what can I know and, um, and the way in which cultural heritage works in the state is it's kind of on a need-to-know basis and that's the way, um, you know, Aboriginal knowledge sharing works. It's when you need to know, you will know um and you trust in that system and whereas now um you can go on wikipedia and find out anything you want um and go on google maps and look in secret places um and so i think um you know it's, it's hard to reconcile sometimes that knowledge is not for everyone and what i was told by an elder was that you know aboriginal knowledge is just like doing a phd after phd after phd it's just this constant learning process throughout your life Um, any trust in that process, that at the time that knowledge will be revealed to you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think just touching on what you were saying, I think sort of structurally and in workplaces and institutions, it always feels like Western knowledge is the base normal. You don't even call it Western knowledge. It's just every way we look and think about everything. And then occasionally you're allowed to introduce a bit of Indigenous knowledge. And I mean, that's not how it should be. And like Maddie was saying, um, it's also complicated because we need to respect how we go about learning about that knowledge. And it works against that sort of really capitalist quick thinking. Whereas I really think it is about doing PhD after PhD, which is really, really long term and long term doesn't fit within that sort of economic rationalist agenda.
3: Um, yeah, I don't really have a job at the moment, so I can't talk about what it's <laughs> like in the workplace. But um, I guess the research that I've been doing has, uh, is part of that is actually engaging with Aboriginal knowledge, Aboriginal knowledge and my sort of heritage in a way that I haven't before and don't really have that much information about it. So I'm sort of approaching, um, un- understanding Aboriginal um, knowledge more and culture more but it's from that sort of Western trained perspective. So it's interesting sort of approaching, you know, engaging for the first time with, with that, kind of, that kind of knowledge and, and yeah, encountering these kinds of things like, um, yeah, that almost like a sense of resistance towards get being given that knowledge and it's sort of harder to access and it's like a yeah, different sort of framework, I guess.
0: Yeah, I guess it becomes a question of what are you gonna do with that knowledge? Because the history and the legacy of sharing knowledge has not always been a great one in this country. Um, uh, I think the, the next talk that we had was on procurement. So this was looking at uh, the stages of built environment professions, particularly before they hit the desk of architects, for example. Um, and, you know, a, a major concern that sort of comes out of that is quite often we get expressions of interest or requests for quotes where we have to engage in an Indigenous narrative and don't have the opportunity to actually speak with traditional owners before we have to design something to, in order to win the job. Um, which is problematic, um, and the um, sorry, I've lost my perspective. Where am I? Um, and I'm interested to hear. I mean, Maddie, I'll start with you because we've had this conversation before. But how does that, well, how does that play out? I think we've talked about um, siloing professions and the fact that we don't speak to each other. And archaeology itself really delves into the the tangible aspects of indigenous culture, whereas perhaps architects deal more with at least in those early stages, the narratives, um, and how we could perhaps better navigate that situation.
2: Yes, so I guess archaeologists often come in first or... um You know, before the architects and maybe at the same time as the planners but they don't necessarily talk. Um, So say we're going to do a big housing development um, you'll probably need to do a cultural heritage management plan which will look at um, the works area and we may do some excavations and find some artifacts and we may tell some stories about those artifacts and what that means for what people were doing um, in this area and we may be collecting oral histories and we may be Um, you know, talking about Dreamtime stories or um, songlines or broader narratives. And we write that all down in a report and we lodge that. And then, you know, it goes to the sponsor and it goes um, to the registered Aboriginal party or the traditional owner and with the state. And that report and that knowledge that is given up by traditional owners, that is, you know, analysed by archaeologists, it doesn't always... It very rarely actually translates to how planners think about the use of the space it rarely translates to how architects and urban designers and landscape architects then think about amenity and aesthetic Um, and so there's a there's a big divide in all of this knowledge gathering um, which tells you about how a place has been used over a millennia um, and then future use of the place and there's all these wonderful um, I guess examples of, of where the current use is the use that it has been for sixty thousand, seventy thousand, a hundred thousand years, um, the limits of archaeological dating basically. Um but, you know, often that's just by historical circumstance. Like the MCG has always been a place where mangrook was played, where sports were played. Um you know and that it just happened that that's how that evolved um and you can see that in other places and so how could um our sense of place and our sense of community be informed by aboriginal sensibilities i think it really starts with that archeology with the archaeology and that knowledge sharing that happens on that level um and so there's a big divide that i see there
0: yeah the potential to influence the built environment with a sensitivity to that knowledge and those reports and and the knowledge that's shared in those early stages, particularly within um, archaeology, would be fascinating and quite empowering, really. Um, What do you find in planning, urban planning? Is there any sort of um, uh, processes that you think aren't shared that would benefit or do you think that there is a link between what archaeologists do, what architects do, what urban planners do uh, in order to... I guess, indigenise the built environment?
1: Yeah, I think absolutely disciplines should be talking to each other a lot more and from the beginning. I think one of my big concerns with urban planning, when you're sort of thinking about procurement and how you sort of work and collaborate with Aboriginal knowledge and culture, is so often it's through really quite rough and ready community consultation with local Aboriginal groups, traditional owners, and there's lots of issues with that. I mean, it's, there's issues around sort of unpaid labour and the expectation of people who already have a lot going on having to give up huge amounts of time. And I guess a lot of the time, it really is quick and dirty work. So before, uh, at a master planning phase or before a development kicks off council's government generally want to not only engage with traditional owners and sort of really look at specific issues that they're legislated to do but quite often they want to do broader community consultation but so often it's just to sort of say that they have and it doesn't get to that rigorous collaboration phase of actually working alongside local Aboriginal community groups from start to finish And really understanding what the benefit of a project is to them. And yeah, looking at sort of the sort of social and economic mutually benefit relationships, I think needs to be improved massively.
0: Do you find there's a difference in research? Do you have, I know you're starting a project now, but do you think there's more freedom in the way that academics or research professionals actually approach working with traditional owners and communities especially well throughout the project the process
3: i think definitely because research is obviously not actualized in sort of a building yet and hasn't entered um i guess the commercial world and i think that's kind of that's the the realm that it's sort of you know where it needs to be almost an automatic question one of the first sort of things addressed in the sort of design process because once the sort of commercial machine starts rolling the danger is that you know any acknowledgement or um yeah Sort of an, any attempt to, ta- to try and weave that sort of Aboriginal story into the built environment, can it runs the risk of becoming sort of tokenistic and just something that just gets slapped into the process um, and lacks kind of uh, authenticity, I guess. So, unless it, it should, I think it should, we should get to a point where it's one of the first questions asked in design, and then the sort of hopefully those lines of communication are, are open enough that when the question's asked, the information's there readily readily sort of able to be shared?
0: Um, it's interesting because I think none of us actually live and work on our own country. And so that means that, you know, we're not working with our own communities specifically. And I'm curious to know in each of your experiences what how that actually impacts the way you work and perhaps what the professions could learn from that process because you will automatically have your own protocols about how you might approach something and how they could then be translated into the way the profession actually
2: operates yep um I guess I'm the only Aboriginal person who works in my organization in my kind of group within a broader department but in my group I'm the only um, indigenous person and so often people will come to me with questions or thinking that I can provide answers to things that is not my place and I think that's something that you know um, I don't speak for this country um, and other people don't speak for my country and so I think those sorts of principles are really um, like inbuilt within me to be able to to kind of have that respect for you know other people's sovereignty, um, and so I think that's something in that you know I can't answer those questions and why that why I believe that the narrative with traditional owners um, is so important. Um, so I think those sorts of protocols, which just come second, like it's so apparent to me to like make decisions for someone else's country. Um, yeah so those sorts of things is is important that even if you have you know a lot of Aboriginal people and you've worked with them a lot you still don't have permission to be making those decisions um you know even though I've grown up um in war wo- in, you know Wurundjeri country my whole life and very close to a lot of um Wurundjeri mob it's still not my country it's still not my place um even though I can hear in the back of my head what she's going to say anyway. But <laughs> but um, yes, yeah, so I think those sorts of principles are really important. Um, but it's also acknowledging that I've got a cultural responsibility to my country um, and being able to go back to my country, which is um, west of Sydney, so out from Barramatta up to the uh, Blue Mountains and be able to, you know, nourish my soul and nourish my country. Um, yeah.
0: Can you talk a little bit about what those protocols might be within your profession within archaeology like how do you actually make sure that you're doing the right thing what steps might you take
2: yeah so lucky for us we've got some really strong legislation <laughs> around um how that was done and strong protocols that were written by elders um, and so it's an acknowledgement that the knowledge that you get um as an archaeologist is provided you by traditional owners and it's not your knowledge you're just writing it down Um, And so archaeologists have specific skills in stone tools and analysis and scientific methodologies, but that true knowledge um, that provides a narrative, that provides the meaning and significance around the stone tools um, belongs to traditional owners. Um, And so it's... And I get that sometimes in research, people um, will um, appropriate traditional knowledge um, without the due... um, acknowledgements or co-authorship yeah
0: um timma not living and working on your own country how does that play out in urban planning
1: it's it's really complicated it's something i've been thinking about a lot i 100 i think maddie explained it really powerfully it's incredibly important to acknowledge your own family histories movement and the fact that you may have been born on Boon country you don't have any sort of blood ancestral ties to that country and so in those professional capacity when you're sort of asked to comment or provide advice it's definitely really clarifying that you're not in any way able to speak for Um, any Aboriginal communities I think it gets I I think it gets tricky I think around technical specific qualifications and again we're in this very western system where people might be really looking for an Aboriginal architect or urban planner and they don't really see the connection that it's actually more important to work with um, you know yorta yorta I don't know Carpenter, whoever whatever their profession is, like that can be much more useful if it's a sort of yoda project. just sort of rambling on, but it just makes me reminds me of when I've been asked to consult on projects like the Shepperton Art Gallery, which was sort of recently went into the sort of design process and sort of felt really uncomfortable and then it's also difficult because I think the profession professionally people really value technical knowledge over the sort of cultural um, realities of whose country you walk on. So I think for me, I think it's really hard. I think for me, I step back. So I try to make sure I don't, if I'm approached to be on a working group around specific land and built environment projects on country that I'm obviously not connected to, I always say no what I'm finding is it's just happening so often. I was recently approached by the New South Wales um, Government Office of Architects to do some work for them and I was kind of like, I absolutely can't because I have no ancestral connection to Gadigal country. I've been to Sydney once in my life for two days. It would be really absurd for me to be involved and they kept on sort of Pursuing it, and again, I think it's this really sort of technocentric, Western professionalized environment we're in where people just are really after a professional technique that a black fella has as opposed to going deeper into community. One thing I'm really interested to sort of see what you guys think, it's something I'm also grappling with, is what people who Grew up on another country, what they sort of feel, where they feel they fit. I mean, for me, I don't... I haven't been back to Belladong country in about four years. And I'm going back this year. I'm really excited about that. But it's a huge journey across the country. So it's not something I could be going back and forth. And I do feel very connected to Bunurong country and all aspects of Victoria. And... More and more, I think there's lots of Aboriginal people who are moving around and settling in other parts of the country. And, yeah, I'm really interested in what that discussion is and sort of how we work better with the traditional owners of the country. We are now sort of making and calling our home as well.
0: I think Mandy Nichols is doing a PhD on that. Yeah, it should be quite interesting. Um I agree with you, but there's an interesting, uh, I guess, distinction that in response to both of your comments that I would make, that if you're invited by the community to work on that country, then that is where everything shifts, um, because you've been given the permission from the people that you need permission from to do the work that you've been asked to do. Um, And I think that, you know, from my own thesis, we had to... uh, I was looking at Yundamu, so Indigenous Housing in Remote Communities, and the first month that I was there, I was like, I'm not doing any research because in the first instance, I need these people to see that I'm I'm here uh, to learn and it's not about me. It's about how whatever, whatever I'm doing can help that community or um, can align with what the community is interested in pursuing. Um, and... The, the invitation to do that came about a month in, but we don't really build those timings into our profession and how we actually operate. And especially if we're being invited to do architecture projects and we're not allowed to speak to traditional owners before we do the work, then um, that's, it's impossible to feel like you're following protocol in those sort of situations. Do you find anything specific in research
3: um i find i generally feel like a pretty clumsy sort of naive rookie when it comes to engaging with um all of this kind of stuff so my general approach is just to sort of take a, a back seat and well, just like make no presumptions and just sort of try and speak to as many people as i can who are in similar positions um but it yeah, it wasn't really highlighted to me the the importance of it until just recently when i um I spoke to a woman from Perth, uh, a Noongar woman, Cassie Lynch. I'm not sure if you go, if you know know her. She's doing a PhD on um, colonial ideology and uh, Western notions of deep deep time, um, and she's from down south. I'm not sure what the like down south in WA, and she works on Wadjuk country. And even that, like you know, you're still in WA, it's still Noongar country, but it's like you know. And then I'm over here on the Yarra, work doing this research project on the Yarra with like another white guy, and yeah didn't sort of realize how the importance of of yeah engaging with that of not being on on your country and not actually yeah i just not knowing the the rules and protocols at all i guess so um yeah that's just sort of first steps really
0: um maddie i'm going to throw to you again for this one uh starting now looking at the memorialization talk that we did um a few months ago so we were looking particularly at uh, Western versions of memorialisation versus Aboriginal versions of memorialisation and how in the built environment that manifests. So, for example, you might have a statue um, to commemorate a person in a Western context of memorialisation or name a park after them and then how they've sort of bled into the way that we're now memorialising Indigenous um, places. So, the problematic aspect of naming like Barangaroo, for example, after a woman Um, ...whereas that's not really traditionally how those names would have been... um, ...or how those places would have been named. Um, So that's sort of the gist of where that talk went... ...and how um, through the correct protocols of working with community... ...you can actually heal places... ...and make them spaces for community to feel safe in... ...and go back to and feel um, that they identify with them. I think, um, Maddie, firstly, in your profession profession, there's quite a lot of... um, ...well, I guess because it's archaeology, you're digging up artefacts... Um, and that's sort of Western museumification of objects, whereas those objects are perhaps living entities, uh, depending on where the community is and how they feel. Um, does does archaeology accept that, or do they still museumify the things that are found
2: in those processes? Yeah, so I think... Um, it, it, I mean this is all different reactions but a lot of archaeologists it, it's a tangible thing that we can do it's what it's our lane and we stick to it so we've got our artifacts and we've got our soil and we you know figure out the color of the soil in our months or books and we get the pHd and we tell you exactly how um, a blade was struck from a core and at what angle that person was holding that rock and how hard they would have hit it based on the way in which the rock ripples. Um, and that's, you know, that's that's all well and good. Um, and it's pretty cool that we can figure that out. But uh, I guess it's, it's overemphasising something that is just indicative of culture, which is more important. And I get really frustrated when I go to archaeology conferences because I'm like, how are you making my culture so boring? Like... <laughs> But um, yes, I think that sort of uh, emphasis on objects and things that are tangible. So a lot of the time, um, say I'm working on a dig in the city or anywhere else, they want to have, oh, we want to name the laneway after somebody or something. So they want to cherry pick out of the report or out of our histories um, a name or, or something um, to, na- to kind of, it's, it's that memorialization of, of place and people and that's not really um it's not really true to culture but it's true to the culture that we live in now um and I think in my country so Parramatta um is Baramatta which is place of the eels um and I'm pretty sure there's some sort of like rugby team called the Parramatta eels I don't really know I follow AFL um and so that's you know a traditional name that got bastardized um and it's a utilitarian name it tells you what the place is Um, and why you would go there and so that carries on through generations if you don't visit um, Baramata you still know that place you still know the stories associated with it you know that that's a place of food um, and where people come so people would come from all different countries to feast on eel Uh, whereas a couple of suburbs over there's a place called Colby Um, Colby is one of my ancestors and he was the first Aboriginal man to be granted land under the new colonial system. Um, And so that suburb was named after that act. And so that's really important to me in memorialising my ancestors and they were there, um, but it's not the way in which he would have named the place. It's not the way in which he would have acknowledged that place. Land ownership was foreign to him, but it was a way for him to protect community and have a place for them to go um and similar to like blacktown in sydney and so now these places have memories and names that are different to where how um, our ancestors would have named them i'm not saying it's good or bad um i think sometimes you know maybe we don't need another captain cook statue i don't know but like um it's important to tell these stories and it's important for me to remember the struggles that my ancestors went through and why I'm such a strong Aboriginal woman today is from those people. And so memorialisation is one way that we don't forget their names. Um, Do you find that there's a
0: memorialisation of places in urban planning or that there's a tendency to uh, apply a Western lens through that framework?
1: Definitely, I think, I mean, if I kind of think more broadly about different ways, like even thinking about what immediately comes to mind, sort of what, what Maddie was saying, is public art and statues and the quick and easy way to memorialise memorialize culture and people and histories. And certainly in new developments there tends to be development contributions, schemes that are in that everyone has to abide by and a lot of that is around the delivery of public art and more and more there is that sort of sense of landscaping and public art to reflect culture. I think what would be amazing is to think about not only memorialising, memorialising the past, but sort of looking at how you can bring it to the future as well. And I think the planning scheme is an incredibly missed opportunity to think about how you can introduce overlays into areas that we know are really important to different communities. Like you could sort of think about Fitzroy and putting in overlays about sort of affordable housing and rent capping for mob and so they can actually live in a place that's really important to them. And yeah, no one's going to see a building and no one's going to see the memory of a history, but it's kind of ensuring that future generations will be supported to stay connected to their culture in ways that public art, landscaping, gardens, native planting can't really achieve other than those hints for us, particularly non-Aboriginal people to think about the city pre-colonization.
3: Uh, yeah, I was just going to follow on from that, and that's kind of, yeah, to agree with that idea of, um you know, it's all, it's like, it's good to acknowledge past kind of, um, like, deaths and things that have sort of ended that haven't been acknowledged, but that, yeah, it's that kind of, to to bring, I guess, culture into a kind of more living sort of sense from, it, like, from an architectural pers- perspective, and what that sort of looks like, like, um. You know, like the say the William Barrick Building's a good example of kind of this big statement, um, you know, interwoven into the architecture, but it's kind of a memorial, even though it's not sort of, sort of intended to be. But I guess what, what sort of architecture or Aboriginal architecture sort of looks like when when there's kind of more cultural, like Aboriginal cultural sort of elements woven into it in a living sense that sort of keeps it alive now rather than just like, oh, this is something that happened before and now we've acknowledged it, it's all good. It's like, you know, got to be sort of, yeah.
0: It's interesting to sort of reflect on what Indigenous memorialisation was and continues to be and perhaps it's through the lens of looking at all of our stories, the dreaming stories that are passed on that are told quite often in like a, a present-day context, they're not necessarily linked to a period of time and that that is a way of both memorialising certain things that happened, like the, the time of chaos and the filling up of the bay um, of uh, Nam or Nurm. Um, and then... But there's a push because we all work in sort of industries that create built environments that we're trying to uh, make those things physically tangible and physically readable to people other... Well, to people that don't know those stories. And it's perhaps an opportunity to... Um, share them but in a way they, they always seem to operate at two different levels there's this idea that um, whenever we're designing something at least in my practice in architecture there's a certain element that's for for community that only community will understand and then there's a certain element for non-Indigenous community um, which is, it's, is not as deep but that also depends on what that knowledge is that's been shared and how it's appropriate to share that knowledge going forward um, I just think it's quite interesting that we're sort of we're now really pushing for this physical, tangible um, way of reading country, and I fully like I, I agreed with it to a to a certain extent. Like if you speak to Wurundjeri elders talking about the William Barrack building, I've heard before um, it being said that it's the only building in the in the city that actually gives an Indigenous presence, and that is powerful in and of itself. Um, so there's perhaps there's so much potential in all of the industries that we do to bring these things to life. But it's uncharted territory in a way. And so figuring out what the best protocols and processes are um, really can't be done without our elders because they're the ones that have the cultural authority to tell us what we can and can't do. Um, So sort of on that note, I'm quite interested to know what... Or how consultation or collaboration actually plays out in your professions, and whether you think it's robust enough, or what you think might need to change.
2: I guess um, so. Registered Aboriginal Parties are traditional owner groups that have a you know claim over a certain amount of land. They say this is our, um, this is you know the land of our ancestors, and then that's endorsed by the Aboriginal Heritage Council, and that really comes out of cultural heritage um, legislation, and so often um, when you're told, oh, go speak to the RAP. And so that kind of comes out of cultural heritage. So that sort of establishment of of RAPs, of Aboriginal bodies being able to form corporations and make money and um, be more capable comes out of cultural heritage um, legislation. And so I think before that it was land councils and now we have registered Aboriginal parties. And so I've forgotten the question, but... (laughs) But I guess you know, we've got um, you know, that, that, sort of, that strong link between cultural heritage and registered Aboriginal parties really forms the way in which um, archaeologists engage with um, traditional owners. So you can't dig a hole as an archaeologist on anyone's country without them being there, without them having um, a representative on site. Uh, you can't finish your report without them signing off on it. So it's really strong. It's a really strong relationship because it's a reciprocal Um, and we both get paid out of it. Uh, Whereas a lot of the time um, non-archaeologists go to registered Aboriginal parties with no money, with nothing, and so it's through cultural heritage work that RAPs are able to fund themselves to be able to do things that they're passionate about. Um, And often that is around um, community spaces um, and outreach programs. So I think um, that, that sort of, like, establishment really came from cultural heritage and there's a strong... Um, kind of a strong link and then there's areas of the state that have no registered Aboriginal party and so you deal with traditional owners in the same way in which you would um, is the best practice.
0: In urban planning so talking specifically about consultation or collaboration processes and how they might be improved.
1: Uh, it's, it's a huge process I think. I almost feel like it's Yeah, almost changing the system and moving from consultation to sort of working out really strong collaborative community models. And I feel like Aboriginal engagement or consultation tends to really be siloed. People either think it's important and valuable if they're doing a project that's specifically Indigenous, like if they're designing and planning an Aboriginal high school or an Aboriginal section of a hospital... But there's that sort of sense that you engage or collaborate if it's specifically to do with something Aboriginal, whereas there's not that sort of holistic concept of working and living on Aboriginal land and how we can sort of change that sort of systemic approach. And I think, yeah, I think it's really challenging because people then tend to see it a little bit as a sort of tick box. And I think a lot of the time engagement is only triggered if the start of a development, when they're sort of doing that, the groundwork, there is a registered Aboriginal party, there is specific records of tangible cultural heritage. And again, that's coming from a Western perspective of how to read that land or place. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's just about trying to get people to really understand that any built environment new project is essentially an Aboriginal project rather than just going oh we really need to engage because this new health centre aims to um, work really well with Aboriginal communities but you know it can just be residential apartments in Collingwood should be thinking about it yeah
3: um yeah I I was just going to say in the the short experience i've had working in in architecture for you know a year and a half or so i was shocked at how little engagement there was but i don't know if that's maybe because the sort of i wasn't sort of involved so much in the sort of procurement stage or the sort of winning jobs or anything but it was a very very minor conversation like if if at all um when yeah i think it should be and one of the first questions asked like an automatic sort of part of the process But like how to get that actually going, whether it needs to be legislated or, you know, but then as soon as it becomes legislated, it becomes bureaucratic and then it becomes a tick box kind of thing, as you said. So,
0: I think one of the things that we do is that whenever we're designing a project or writing a um, brief with a particular community, we sit down and figure out what the ethos is of that site first and then what the protocols are of working on that site. So even if the project has absolutely nothing to do with the community directly, there's a way of operating with respect on that land that then gets carried through into the way that the project is designed. And so it might not have a narrative; it might not have um, anything specific to do with that place. But at least at the ethos from the beginning is going, okay, what are the laws of this country, and how can we make sure that those are maintained throughout that process? Um, the when I was doing uh, my thesis, we were looking, we were in Yundumu um, and I spoke to Prime Minister and Cabinet and the um, Territory Housing about what their consultation process was, and that's effectively, they design five houses, five options of a house based on the National Indigenous Housing Guide and what is normal for a house, um, quote, um, and then go into community and say, which one do you want? And that uh, that's not sufficient. That's not really embedding the... The, built, well, the the spatial organisation of the houses, the way that those are designed for climate, none of those things are really taken into account. And so I think, especially in sort of uh, housing programs, we've got a long way to go to make sure that those um, collaboration processes are actually brought in from the very beginning and can be maintained the whole way through. But I think we have a lot to learn from the processes of archaeology and how that is actually... Um, ...enacted and how that we could potentially bring some of that within architecture.
2: Well, we can't do our jobs without it and that's the that's reality of it. That's why I quite like affirmative action and I like things that make people do things... Um, ...because you don't get slack, you have to do it. So, yeah, you have to consult, um, you have to work with community... ...otherwise you can't do your job.
0: It's a nice way of <laughs> living life. <laughs> um, I think we'll move on to the next talk, which is the last one we did... ...which was on education... Um, and particularly we were looking at indigenising architectural and built environment education. Um, So first I'd like to ask, what was your personal experience of your degrees? Did you feel there was any or enough Indigenous content within your undergraduate masters, whatever you studied, PhD?
2: Yeah, so I went to La Trobe to study archaeology because it had a strong Indigenous program. So I learned a lot about Indigenous material culture, but I didn't hear from a single Indigenous person um, in my degree. And then I'm currently doing the master's degree. Um, and then the only Indigenous people we have heard from um, was a wonderful woman from Thursday Island um, and a wonderful Indigenous man who just happens to be a PhD student um, and that's why they roped him into it. But there is no um, Indigenous stu- teachers teaching Indigenous archaeology, so nobody is teaching our culture at university. Um, there, is, there was no opportunities for traditional owners to come and speak to us, and so you could do an entire Indigenous archaeology degree without ever meeting an Indigenous person. Um, And so there's a real real disconnect between our material culture and our culture. Um, And that's something I always struggle with, is this differentiation between our old people's material culture and our culture.
1: I studied urban planning at Melbourne Uni and... Yeah, I... Yeah, just really similar experience to Maddie. I felt that... It, the the starting point of the degree was the idea that cities, urban planning... Any kind of structural systems started... Yeah, from white settlement. So, there was nothing that acknowledged that anything. So, Terra Nullius, that's the quick and simple way... Could have been the theme of the degree. I think... I think it's changing, but I think it's really interesting that again it's very siloed. So people like GFA, GFA Greenway, if people aren't familiar with him, does quite a few units in that degree, but it's very it tends to still be a particular unit or subject on sort of indigenous architecture and design. It's certainly not. And that's in architecture, I still think it's very much lacking in urban planning. Um, I I think it's really hard too because sort of even stepping back, the system of those degrees really privileges technical knowledge and skills. So sort of sitting exams and that sort of style of learning. And I've spoken to people like Linda Kennedy who did some of her architecture masters in that program and was really interested in trying to sort of restructuring learning methods and yeah i guess sort of shifting pedagogies but yeah that's really challenging so i think i think i agree i think the the conversation is happening but certainly there were no aboriginal academics or content when i studied and unfortunately i think it's still Yeah, sort of very much marginalised as electives.
3: Um, Yeah, there was no engagement or mention of it at all. I studied in WA maybe five years ago now and there was, yeah, very, like, zero. Um, We spent a lot of time, as all architecture students do, looking at, you know, Greek columns and that kind of stuff and I always found that strange. But um, it's good to see... Now, like moving over to Melbourne a year or so ago, seeing how much, um, you know, just contacting unis and looking at applications, and um, it seems so much more prominent over here with people like yourself and, um, yeah, GIFA, and uh, it's much stronger here, which is good to see.
0: I think from the conversation we had, and if you haven't, if you weren't here or if you haven't heard it, it's I encourage you to go back and listen to the education uh, talk because there was quite a lot of productive, actionable takeaways that can be embedded within architecture degrees. And one of the really interesting conversations we had was looking at it and sort of going, well, what would have made that better? And obviously, you know, that's including Indigenous content, but that's also um, having role models. It's also having people that you can go and talk to and have conversations with about frustrations and know that that um, is acceptable. Um, And being able to, I guess, have a safe space. I was mentoring a student from Perth who did the first year of the architecture degree and then uh, quit. Uh, and I was mentoring him after this stage, like trying to figure out like what, what was an issue for him. And his response was that he felt like he had to leave his culture at the door and that any conversation that he had wasn't valid because there was no evidence, which ties back to this whole technical conversation that we've been having um, and that it's all based on oral history and therefore it can't be proven and we sort of have to wait until science proves it for it to be an acceptable thing to talk about within... Uh, what we're doing, which is not a productive way of looking at engaging with Indigenous communities and traditional owners. Um, My own experience is, I mean, quite similar. We didn't really have anything in our undergraduate degree except perhaps five minutes in a history lecture. And um, then you know, in any attempt to bring an Indigenous understanding of that place, uh, which was completely divorced from actually speaking to traditional owners, but at least to acknowledge where the country was and what that might mean, is sort of met with um, supervisors and tutors disengaging because they don't have the the skills, which is not their fault. Let's be clear about that. They weren't given the skills to be able to engage in that conversation. But the problem then is that there's no critical debate. There's no furthering of that conversation. It just sort of stops. Um, And so I think... The, the conversation about education is definitely progressing a lot faster than um, perhaps the profession and procurement and memorialisation and all these other aspects of the Indigenous built environment, uh, but it's, it's definitely still got a long way to go. I think there's only one subject in all of Australia that is a core subject for students that is about Indigenous knowledge or cultural intelligence is what it's called. So the only, the, I think it's Charles Darwin. So there's only one university that you go to where it's guaranteed to have at least one subject that you have to do as a mandatory core subject where you will learn something about the country that you're on. Um,
2: do you get credit points for doing that subject?
0: Yeah, it's a core subject, Yeah. Um, Whereas you're right, the rest of them are electives or studios and they're not, or at least in architecture, and they're not, um, it's not embedded within the entire degree and the entire understanding of what our responsibility are, or is, as built environment professionals. Um, uh, What, oh sorry, um, what do you think within your own professions would be useful to incorporate within those degrees? So I think, Maddie, you spoke a little bit earlier about uh, closing that disconnect between material culture and culture, but how would that be done?
2: (laughs) Jesus. Um, So I think uh, you touched on before talking about how um, sometimes we feel like our oral histories aren't seen as valid histories um, when they are. And when you think about why we had oral histories and the stories we were telling, they're about stories of survival, they're stories of... um, continuing our culture and it's looking into the future and into the past and it's making sure that knowledge is carried on whereas um often in archaeology more weight is um given to settler diaries and when you think about what are their motivations for keeping these diaries what are their motivations for sending these letters and what are they seeing and how are they processing it they didn't understand what they were seeing often and um often they lie in their diaries and they're trying to rationalise the horrible things that they're seeing and the things that they're doing um, and so those things are unreliable sources but for some reason the written word carries more weight um, than the oral story um, and so I think it's, it's you know part of that is flipping that narrative um, and it's also bringing together um, a more nuanced understanding of if this is our material culture what is that telling us about the deep past of this place? What is that telling us about what people are doing and what people have been doing in this place for tens of thousands of years and what we should be doing to be able to respect um, and care for country? Because often, um, you know, well, always, Aboriginal people wouldn't be performing something or doing something on country or settling somewhere if country couldn't sustain that. Um, And so the core of, um, you know, our interaction uh, with the natural environment... um, which was largely constructed really um, through fire farming and other agricultural processes, uh, was about sustaining life, sustaining um, culture and sustaining um, the natural environment. And so I think those sorts of stories um, through the material culture, through oral histories can really connect back into all of us and how we can um, sustain country for future generations.
1: I think what would be a really amazing change is just restructuring, yeah, I think sort of assessment processes. I felt with urban planning, um, it was pretty onerous. It was kind of like, you know, studying for exams and that's not the best way to reflect how you're learning and thinking, you know, long sort of theses. And I think... Yeah, looking at sort of different ways people can present knowledge um, and show that they've learnt at the end of a semester, I think would be a really amazing way to kind of show... ...to just sort of move away from a really kind of Western tradition of how we sort of think about things. But sort of getting back to what we've been talking about, I think because urban planning and architecture too... They tend to be, there tend to be lots of rules you're meant to learn. And again, that sort of Western idea of thinking is that an exam will prove that you've learnt the rule that will then enable you to be a good planner. So,
0: what might be an alternative way?
1: Oh, look, I think lots of things. I think sort of allowing people to do, you know, sort of collective action, like a sort of project where people sort of reflect on maybe how their share house or their living arrangement works in kind of a micro sense of being part of a bigger city or community. Um, Crediting sort of activism work and sort of that connecting sort of urban planning to actual sort of placemaking and community and sort of I guess which I'm trying to do and it's really hard but just moving away from the idea that you're an expert because you can write really brilliant 5,000-word essays that encompass decolonial theory or whatever the buzzword is, but kind of models of thinking where you can, yeah, demonstrate your practice and that could just be through photo documentation or recording stories and things like that.
3: Um, I would start just by... Uh, reshaping how architectural history is taught because that's like you know in the f- sort of first year first semester kind of unit, it's always history of Western architecture which in a sense is kind of a history of colonialism whether it's the Romans or the English or the French um, and looking yeah looking more at how people like or making it just an element of it is how people have lived here for so many thousands of years um, as opposed to yet yeah, getting drummed into what um, ionic I'd say I didn't listen, obviously, in history, but, um, yeah, what Greek columns were.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Um, I think uh, we'll sort of move on from the past talks now and talk a little bit about, uh, perhaps a little bit more introspectively, um, about the profession and particularly about impact. Um, So I think you've all touched on this a little bit before, but there's... The way I sort of see it, and please add to this list or take away if you think it's not... not um, complete, um, and looking at and analysing the way that we own, we, our impact, sorry, the impact of what we do in our professional and, um, and academic lives is on both you as a person, so how you introspectively um, have changed or are approaching what you do, um, the impact of education um, and what you've learnt and how that then impacts your profession, the impact, uh, or the impact the profession as a whole has on country, on community, on um, on any sort of Indigenous narrative or understanding or sensibility of place, um, the impact of your own experience in practice and how that then allows you to effectively operate um, and the impact that everything that we do has on both uh, our communities and our country, um, which is a very long-winded uh, way of explaining it, but I'm quite curious to know... Uh, First off, from each of you, how does what you do in your profession
2: impact you personally? Um, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I sat over here so I wouldn't get asked first, but here I am. Um, So I think for me, growing up, um, I always wanted to to find a way to access culture, um, access sort of the way in which our elders were using land and what they were doing and what I was seeing. And so that's what, what drawed what drew me into archaeology and what keeps me in archaeology is these sorts of conversations um it's really looking at at land in that deep time um and that circular time and in in coming back um, always coming back into you know what's supposed to happen um and so I think you know uh yeah I guess you know it's it's that it's that constant dialogue with, with culture that's really important to me and the constant dialogue with the land and deep listening um, that really drives me and wants, makes me want to stay in archaeology, yeah. Personally? Um, oh it's huge I think for me it's always it's
1: kind of conflicting I mean I'm really passionate about how we live as communities and cities and honoring Aboriginal sovereignty and what planning can or can't contribute to that is really important to me I think some I don't know in some ways it's 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 great to be able to access knowledge and have this understanding and when I'm talking about knowledge I'm talking about colonial knowledge to really just be so aware of how unbelievably colonial we still are and i feel like there's so many buzz movements and so much going on in sort of arts and grassroots spaces universities which is brilliant and really really exciting but when you work in a sort of technical sort of land use planning government environment we're so incredibly colonial And sometimes I think it's important to be aware and I certainly haven't worked out how, you know, a few Aboriginal people spread it across the department are going to overthrow how colonial our system is. But I think, I don't know, I think in a way I I do feel like it's something I want to engage with and understand and not be too, I I don't know, and hopefully not feel so naive and also kind of hopefully in the long term work out how the more sort of progressive disciplines might start impacting how colonial our planning and government system is at the moment
3: can you just say the question again
1: how what you're doing impact you
0: or how your research or your study or everything that you've done so far, how does that impact the way that you operate or think about what you're doing?
3: From an Indigenous perspective?
0: Or from your own perspective.
3: Um, yeah, I guess I've had a big shift in the last kind of year or so because prior to that I didn't really um, identify as Indigenous in a professional sense. Um, you know, it's always been sort of something that I've known and engaged with in a personal sense but... Um, to sort of take on you know or to to enter that kind of new world, I guess in a sense, because that's what it's sort of felt like um from a professional sense has um has been really interesting and it's sort of it's made a lot of sense of certain um approaches or ideas that I've sort of had in the past that haven't haven't really found a place to sort of rest um that, yeah, that haven't, re- haven't really made sense and then engaging with the Indigenous sort of s- stuff and the Indigenous architecture and reading stuff that you've read and re- you've written, sorry, um, has, it's like, oh, that's, that's kind of, that makes sense. It sort of, you know, starts to make sense of your own kind of, like, small elements of your own kind of, um, yeah, thought processes and stuff, I guess. Um, but, yeah, it's sort of early stages in a professional sense for me, so, yeah. I
0: think we've talked about education experience Um, and so moving on to sort of how does the, how does what you do impact the profession as a whole? So you as an Indigenous person working in that area, how do you feel that actually impacts the profession?
2: Yeah, I think, um, often the sort of dynamic with an archaeologist working with traditional owners is that the archaeologist is the expert and the traditional owner is there, um and can offer information but really it's the synthesis of what you know the importance is is with the archaeologist and you get that dynamic you know all the time as in i'm the architect or i'm the you know whoever and i'm building this thing and we're going to have input and that's where that sort of collaboration slash consultation slash indigenous led um that's a sort of juxtaposition of roles um and so being an indigenous person being in the driver's seat per se, being the archaeologist, um, that dynamic shifts because I, you know, um, will revert to my elders and ask them for guidance and they're really, I'm just the tool in which the cultural heritage happens. I'm not the expert, they are the expert. I can just dig a really pretty hole. Um, And so I think that sort of dynamic is really important. I think it must be incredibly tiring um, for for traditional owners, um, to be on their country and not feel like the expert, um, I think that must be incredibly taxing for them, and so that sort of relationship is really important, and it's really important to have blackfellas, um, in our cultural heritage and to be, um, able to have, it's so beautiful when I go out on site and it's only other Aboriginal people, um, the whole dynamic just shifts, and, um, you know, it's just really special to be able to be yourself um, and to be with culture and country and to be doing that work. Um, so I think, you know, there should be more Fellow archaeologists.
1: Yeah, I, I kind of agree. I think, I, I mean, it's complicated because you generally tend to be the only Aboriginal person in your team, which creates certain pressures and stresses and certainly, as we discussed before, when you're not um, working on your own country, you're also wanting to be really careful that you're not in any way taking an uh, influential or decision-making role on what might happen. I think, I think, it, I think it's good because I think if – like, if I think about in my team, if there weren't any Aboriginal staff at all, there wouldn't be anyone to sort of remind people to think about things differently – Um, That said, I think people are getting better and a lot of the time I have noticed that before I've even thought about something, people are already considering um, Aboriginal perspectives and how a project might influence them. But yeah, definitely it would be really, really good to just see more Aboriginal people get into senior roles in sort of built environment it feels like probably because of iadv and sort of the people we connect with there's lots of people studying and i guess people sort of like us who have done grad programs and sort of i guess at that sort of early career or recent grads and yeah i hope there gets there's just more people who get into senior roles even though i sort of also understand that that would be challenging but it'd be good too
3: I think from a research perspective it's been um probably easier to get grant funding which is kind of good. <laughs> um but yeah from in in that sense as well it's just uh feels like a real sort of in in feel like I'm in a really privileged position in that sense that comes with sort of yeah responsibility but also this yeah real sort of cuz there's l- it like it in it feels like that there's a voice that is wanting to be heard now which is really nice. Um So there's, it's just been lots of invitations and kind of like, you know, open doors and kind of engagement and which is, yeah, a good thing.
0: Um, And I think finally on the conversation of impact, how do you think what your profession does impacts country?
2: Um, I think I wish it impacted country more. Um, I wish it had more of an impact in the way in which we view um, land use planning and the way in which we view architecture and design and um meaningful place use that facilitates sustainable healthy communities that facilitates um caring for country and aboriginal access into our sacred places um because we record these sacred places and then we put an arbitrary buffer around them and then somebody builds a house within 50 meters of a sacred woman's site and what does that mean but if that knowledge was respected and shared and and people considered that, how would that place have been um, designed to facilitate Aboriginal women being able to access their sacred places? Um, And so I think uh, it's had an enormous impact um, on uh, Aboriginal senses of identity. Um, It's always a reminder of our ancestors. Whenever I pick up a stone tool, whenever I pick up... um, You know, heat retainers from someone's fire or, you know, um, traces of animal bone or anything that was left behind. It's always a tangible reminder that our old people were here, you know, for an almost unimaginable length of time. Um, When you put it in a world scale perspective, it's kind of, it is just so incredibly deep. And so to be able to touch that time depth, to be able to dig through the dirt and find you know, that is pretty incredible. And so I think for community, it brings this sense of, like, of um, validation. You know, we, we didn't need to know that our old people have been here for 60, 80, whatever, however many tens of thousands of years. We didn't need to know that, but that provides a validation when we say we're sovereign people because we've cared for this place for that long. Um, we don't need to know, we didn't need to be validated to say, you know um, our old people were um, you know had this relationship with the stars but when you find stone arrangements um, like the ones uh, in the what are you yangs and um you, that's just an, it's just another validation that science gives to say to everybody terrestrial is fake and that our old people had these really complex ways of living and complex ways of communicating with the earth and so Whilst we're not finding anything new, because we've got it in our oral traditions, we're finding something tangible, um, which cements our place as the oldest living culture in the world. Um, And so I think that is kind of the crux of what's important about my profession.
1: I think, probably from what I was saying before, I think urban planning has such an enormous impact, but it's an explicitly colonial impact when you think that urban planning just was white settlement patterns of carving up the landscape to turn them into environments that reflected England, essentially. And I don't think... In some ways, I don't think we've moved that far from that perspective. What's been happening is more sort of artists and academics and activists have been doing interventions and things like Native Title and land rights have changed the conversation... I think it would be incredible. Yeah, we've sort of, I guess, to try to take advantage of this quite recent groundswell of interest in Aboriginal knowledge and culture and look about look at how what legislative change in a planning system could look like, so really incorporating zones and overlays that would prioritize Aboriginal people on their land when people are thinking about planning and development as opposed to planning and development being that really capitalist model of build and the sort of economic imperatives.
3: Um. Yeah, I guess similar in architecture as there is to on, in urban planning in that on the whole, you'd almost say it's kind of a, had a negative impact on, on country, but I guess from um, with the architecture as opposed to urban planning it's more just how it's more how people live how they live on country um and yeah i think it, it has a massive effect like whether you know you're talking about communities in the kimberley or um central desert you know with sort of being you know government housing being sort of you know dale alcock sort of style homes that are the same as they would be in sort of suburban suburban Perth or suburban Melbourne and that's not how people people don't live there They're the same as they would live here and it's the sort of um, yeah so I guess it has a yeah has a massive effect.
0: Architecture has been used as a tool of colonization. If you think of transitional housing and and I guess uh, physical interventions, putting up fences to block views of Aboriginal settlements, the whole turning you back on the river, then turning back to the river now, all of these things are sort of coming to life and it's a really exciting time to be able to have an impact on that, which is fulfilling. Um, I'm going to ask one more question and then we'll open up to any questions in the audience. Um, A lot of what we do day to day is sort of short-term gain. Um, What then if you're looking at that from your whole life is your end game what's the long game what do you want to achieve
2: right um so like treaty like sovereignty you know um i guess archaeology is destruction we are often in front of the bulldozer kind of more figuratively than literally But, you know, we're there before the destruction happens. We dig it up. It's never the same again. You can't put that hearth back into place. It's gone. Once I've dug it, it's gone. And all that's left is what I've recorded. Um, And so as we, you know, look at the urban boundaries of Melbourne, pushing out of these regional centres getting bigger, of mining, of the impact of, you know, um, all of this incredible development that is forever changing... Um, the landscape what I see is just this continued destruction of our cultural material Um, and thinking about things like scarred trees so trees that have been culturally modified to remove the bark for things like bowls or canoes or shields Um, they have a lifespan Um, they won't be here forever and so I guess you know as an archaeologist we busily write things down and we record things in this attempt to say this was here and now it's gone um and so it's, it's kind of a daunting thing to think about um you know how do we preserve this and what do we preserve and how do we um i guess you know see the significance in things because we see the significance in victorian houses and we keep these beautiful housing um you know these land these streetscapes sorry in, in East Melbourne and they're beautiful um, but how do we then think about retaining Aboriginal landscapes and um, you know Aboriginal places that maybe aren't as tangible or as understandable or more fragile and more prone to destruction um, and so I think that for me is something that you know I'm really interested in these are conversations that I really want to have is looking at um, and, and we've just got um, Bujbim in um, Gunditjmara country, beautiful eel traps um, put on the World Heritage Register, its first Indigenous place um, to be recognised for its Indigenous um, cultural significance only um, as a significant place to the entire world. And so more and more I think we need to look at how are we retaining our um, cultural landscapes and... Um, And so, I think that's, for me, is something through my career that I'd love to kind of work on and advocate for.
1: Yeah, I think for me, it's pretty similar. I mean, obviously, those really transformative change, like, you know, treaty and really understanding what sovereignty means holistically, and then specifically... To planning is how we sort of I guess move all, move on from collaboration and consultation and even dialogue and the sort of the way that in the last few years there seems to be a lot of interest and excitement around Aboriginal culture and design and knowledge systems and how we kind of build that into the current dominant system. So that's sort of you know planning law and yeah, sort of how we can really fix the planning scheme which is what all planners technically and do abide by and sort of what uh aboriginal planning scheme would look like and how you would integrate so, yeah similar to sort of what maddie was reflecting on is that planning will protect things like height and heritage buildings and those camberwell east melbourne streetscapes but what would aboriginal cultural significance look like in a planning scheme and yeah sort of looking back but looking forward so not preserving you know our concepts of remaining aboriginal cultural and history but how the planning system can support the future of aboriginal contemporary aboriginal life in cities and regions yeah
3: yeah i guess similar again in the sense that, in a sort of inevitable process of development that will happen and will probably happen faster and faster with more um, you know as the, the world changes and there's you know high likelihood of big sort of refugee movements and population growth that how how that inevitable sort of um, development is sort of pushed back against it in a certain sense so that the sort of the the narrative in, in the outcome is um, one that is sort of has a, a stronger sort of Aboriginal presence as possible.
0: I think I was going to answer my own question. I'd shorthand would say indigenise the built environment. Um, longhand would probably go into that in more detail um, about how to make it contemporarily relevant to, to now. How do we bring the stories and the things that are found and make them... Um, make them relevant to how we live now, sort of similar to all of you really, Um, and make them tangible because that seems to be where we're going. Um, All right. has anybody got any questions, might open up. Just pop your hand up.
4: (coughs) Thanks very much. Um, all three or four of you for sharing. Um, it's been an interesting discussion this evening. Um, I want to maybe get your reaction to something that's been in the media today, which links back in different ways the conversation you've been having about um, the the idea for a new museum of First Nations Australians, um, which was um, being promoted um, on the radio. I heard uh, an interview with a professor from the University of Western Sydney who's a former um, UNESCO consultant um, and my initial reaction was one of caution but I wonder if that's got a role um, in this uh, conversation around education um, and memorialisation um, I wonder how it fits into that and maybe yeah what your thoughts are of um, what the role of it could be or whether you think it's a good idea or a bad idea at all.
2: Thanks for the, that question. Um, so I guess I and mean, there's many. Uh, it's a it's a big question to unpack. So one is recognizing. I think they want to set that up in Canberra, I believe, or um, in a central location. At um, at any rate, um, it's recognizing the diversity of Aboriginal cultures. It's not a monolith. There's not one way of being Aboriginal. There's not one response or there's not one culture or one language. Um, and so. It, a museum dedicated to Indigenous Australia would need to recognise that diversity of language, diversity of culture, Um, you know, the difference between matriarchal and patriarchal, those stories, the shared history we have and the shared stories we have, but also that difference. Um, And from what, you know, uh, my elders are still fighting to get the remains of our ancestors out of museums in London and other places and underneath the desks of academics in Melbourne and Sydney and Canberra. Um, and so, you know, with this, it's a very complex relationship that we have with museums, that we have with um, these places who say, but we know how to look after it better. And, yeah, maybe you've got your air-conditioned, um, you know, cabinet that's light-sensitive and you put your conservation treatments over it, but that doesn't mean that that's where that artifact belongs and so any sort of attempt to um show off aboriginal culture would need to be informed by what each community wants to tell what story do you want to tell and what do you want to show um i think that sort of is central
1: yeah i'll just touch briefly i think anything like that similar similarly, it has pros and cons like there's part of you that worries that it's just institutionalising culture and putting it away in a certain environment. And, yeah, whether any kind of museum, gallery-type records are better if they are more grassroots and black-led and if that sort of national, federal-type millions-of-dollar funding could be much better spent in other ways but I don't know.
3: Yeah, I don't know much about the, the museum itself, but my first reactions also would be one of caution as well, because it's like the, the idea of kind of a museum is always, feels to me like it's like a tour of something dead, as opposed to sort of trying to promote something that's like alive and living and needs to be kind of, um, yeah, strengthened from, the, from its sort of like living perspective rather than the sort of you know, dead one, I guess.
0: It'd be interesting to redefine what a museum is could be a really interesting opportunity to uh, find a way and a language to actually bring those items to life. You'd need an extensive amount of consultation and collaboration with community um, and uh, a really open-minded institution, Um, but it could be good. There's the potential for it to be good. Any other questions? No? All right. Um, Please join me in thanking our lovely speakers. Um, And thank you for coming. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. Visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.